Hello and welcome to the SWIB podcast, where members of the Wisconsin Retirement System can turn for timely updates on the investments that help fund the state's pension system. I'm Chris Preisler, Communications Specialist for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board. And I'm Dusty Weiss, producer of the podcast. Navigating today's sometimes volatile financial markets takes innovative thinking. It's critical to design and implement investment strategies that generate reasonable returns and provide some protection during market downturns. SWIB's goal is to generate returns over the long term and help ensure the WRS remains strong and capable of paying promised benefits long into the future. After all, more than 642,000 current and former state and local government employees and their families rely on the WRS for some of their retirement security. In a time when public pension funds across the country are struggling with issues related to underfunding, the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, or SWIB, has helped fuel one of the only fully funded pension systems in the country. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. For more information from SWIB, make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and visit us online. Joining us for the first episode of the SWIB podcast is SWIB Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer David Villa. Today, we're going to talk to David about SWIB's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what it means for the trust funds of the Wisconsin Retirement System. David, thank you for joining us today and welcome. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm honored to be part of the first episode. This is a very unsettling time for people, not just in terms of concerns about their health, but also because of the impact the pandemic has had on the global economy. Can you talk a little bit about how this volatility is impacting the WRS trust funds and any opportunities you were able to take advantage of? Sure. Our mission or the goal is to allow about 640,000 retirees and active employees to retire in dignity. So in order to achieve that, we have our eye on the long term. So I'll talk a little bit about what's happening this year, but I also want to bring that into context of the five years. The direct impact in the short term was a decline in the value of the fund by about 11.5% as of the end of March. And then as of the end of June, the core trust fund had rebounded and is now down about 1.5%. So a 10% rebound in the performance of the fund in a relatively short time. But we managed the funds against a five-year time horizon because the effective rate that determines contributions and the annual annuity adjustment is based on the five-year effective rate. So as of the end of June, if we have no more performance between now and the end of the year, the return will be above 7%, which is in line with the actuarial target return. And the hurdle for a positive adjustment to the annuity payments is about 5.5%. So at the moment, we're above that threshold on the rolling five-year basis. I guess as the um, market declined, a lot of institutional investors ran for the exits. We were able to step up and provide liquidity to the market. Another important characteristic of the fund is the fund is structured in a way that the equity asset class contributes 84% of the total volatility of the core trust fund annual return, which contrasts to the typical pension portfolio, which um, has about 92% of the risk coming from equities. So we achieve about the same return with about 1% lower volatility or risk. 
David, I think it's really fascinating that you note how much of a recovery that there's already been, and, and there's certainly more volatility expected as governments and institutions work to get their hands around the COVID-19 coronavirus and, and its long-term economic impact. But from your position right now, what are the ways that you're seeing that this downturn is different from some of the other downturns? Certainly the Great Recession of 2008 springs to mind as the foremost example, but how is this different from some of the other downturns that people have experienced in their lifetimes? Yeah, when we look at the history of financial markets over the last 600 years, we see a recurring theme of exuberance, euphoria, the madness of crowds, and bubbles that burst. And underneath the bubble, supporting the bubble, is a mountain of debt. So we have economic cycles, which go from euphoria to fear, and um, it's often associated with the debt cycle or the credit cycle. This was different because it was more like a natural disaster. This was caused more by a force of nature, like a hurricane or an earthquake. So it's not necessarily a market variable that imploded. It was a virus, a pandemic uh, that led to social distancing, and the social distancing did great, great damage to the global economy. This is not a black swan. This is not something that is uh, happening for the first time in history. And, and it is striking how this is different from other instances of pandemic that have occurred in just the past couple of decades. But I guess the burning question on the front of my mind is, is it naive? Is it too optimistic to look at this and say, well, once we do get it under control, once we've developed a vaccine or it's run its course and, and the economy returns to normal, is it naive or too optimistic to say that the markets will return to their pre-COVID levels? Well, I think you have to take into account time. Time is the important variable. And in order to kind of think through time, you have to ask yourself, what is the problem? The problem is a new virus, which has five times the mortality risk that the normal flu has. So the question is then, well, have we defeated the virus? The answer is no. Social distancing does not defeat the virus. Social distancing keeps the healthcare system from imploding, and it allows us to treat people that are sick at a pace that we can cope with as opposed to being overwhelmed. But it does not eliminate the virus. So what eliminates the virus? Well, herd immunity, but that's a very costly strategy. A vaccine, but it could take a very long time to have a new vaccine. There's probably 10 to 12 vaccines that are being developed seriously, and uh, we might have something early in the new year, but then we have to distribute billions of doses of vaccine. So I think the optimism is in how quickly we'll have a vaccine, which I think could take as long as three years or even longer. So between now and the time that we have a vaccine or a more reliable treatment for the virus, we will oscillate between being very optimistic and being very pessimistic as the number of positive tests emerge from the testing and then decline. So I think we will return to um, where we were before. I think the other big economic force is 
the extremely accommodative monetary policy that has been in place really since 2009, 2010, where interest rates are very, very low and institutional investors are being taxed up to 2% because the return on cash and the return on the term structure is very close to zero. So investment returns will be very low. I don't think you should intermix the returning to normal and low investment returns. The low investment returns are more a product of asset prices being very high because of monetary policy, and the earnings and economic activity is low because the response to the pandemic is social distancing, which does tremendous damage to the economy. So David, what I'm what I'm hearing here is volatility is going to be a part of the equation here going forward. Uh, how does that volatility change the way SWIB invests the trust funds? Well, volatility is extreme and the pandemic increases the range of possible outcomes that we face over the next three years. So I would expect volatility and the volatility of volatility to be very high for some time. However, surprisingly, that does not have a very large effect on the way we invest the funds. The way we invest the funds is driven primarily by a policy portfolio, which is a portfolio that we build based on our expectations for the next 10 years and the next 30 years. So it's a very long time frame. And uh, what happens in any one year or even in the next five years is overwhelmed by what happens over the next 30 or 40 years. So what we try to do is build a portfolio that will do well over a very long time frame, and it will do well through periods of market euphoria and market despair. And we do that by having about 10 to 16% of leverage in the portfolio, which allows us to have about the same amount of equity in our policy portfolio as the classic pension fund portfolio, but we have 12% more fixed income exposure because of the leverage. And the fixed income exposure provides a form of insurance so that during periods of fear and despair, the fixed income assets perform well. And during periods of euphoria and greed, the risky assets perform well. So we don't want to run from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat and increase the turbulence as the unintended consequence of shifting from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat. In other words, we don't want to oversteer because the portfolio is designed to be robust through the long cycle of economic performance and the financial market performance. Now, our expectation for the future returns over the next five to seven years is about 6.2%, and our target is 7%. So that's 80 basis points below the target. And the way we make that up is by taking risks around the policy portfolio. But the relative size of those risks is small. The variability of the policy portfolio is about 11% the variability of this active risk or tilting the portfolio is only about 1%. So by taking risks around the periphery of the policy portfolio, 
which is quite small relative to the risk of the policy portfolio, we're trying to add another 50 to 80 basis points of return to get to our 7% target. But the bottom line is we do not change our strategy dramatically, even in the face of extreme volatility. We would be considered fearless rebalancers who would provide liquidity to the market when the market becomes extremely volatile and asset prices fall to very low levels. So in maintaining some of that balance in the way you're investing the funds and the performance of the portfolio, that's important because of the design of the WRS and the shared risk that the participants have in the outcome, right? Yes. We're, we're very careful to consider the interests of both the retirees and the active employees. The active employees and the retirees or the annuitants make up about 640,000 public sector workers. The interest of the retirees is to receive positive annuity adjustments. The interest of the active employees is to have a stable contribution rate. So we, we want to make sure that we don't just drive the fund in the interest of the retirees. We have two populations that we're concerned about. But both populations share the risk. And so the volatility is palpable. And to the extent that we incur large losses through the trailing five-year return, contributions go up for the active employees and there is no annuity adjustment. The annuity adjustment might be zero for the annuitants. So we do think very deeply about building a portfolio that has the highest return per unit of risk uh, because that's the, that's the measure of success is to get the maximum return per unit of risk without taking on so much risk that we have a high probability of increasing contribution rates for the active employees or decreasing annuity adjustments for the retirees. And just as important as those active employees and the retirees, maintaining those contribution rates is important also, right, for the employers, the local governments, the school districts that are making contributions on the behalf of the employees and, and helping them, especially when they have to deal with budget crunches and cuts. Yes, I, I think that's a very important distinguishing characteristic of the WRS. I'm going to share some numbers. I'm not completely sure I've got them exactly correct off the top of my head, but I believe that the cost to employers in the state of Wisconsin is about 2.2% of their budget, whereas on average in the United States, the cost is north of 4%. So in terms of the cost to produce a benefit that is on a par with most pension plans, our costs are close to half of what other states are. So the second the second part of the, the answer is that I don't think it's well understood by most of the state pension plans that for every dollar of contributions that you do not make or that you defer or that you direct to some other purpose, you increase the costs of the pension plan for the retirees, the employers, and the taxpayers by $3. So 
one of another distinguishing characteristic of the WRS as that the contributions historically have always been made and there are mechanisms within the system to make sure that the contributions are made. It's not an option to pay the contributions into the fund. As a result, the costs are predictable and the contribution rates are not volatile. They, 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 they do move around as the market returns move around, but they're a lot less volatile than you see in other states. And that's what makes the WRS so robust. David, I've always actually wondered this as a former public employee and someday pension collector myself. Why is it that Wisconsin is such a rarity in fully funding its pension? You'd think that everybody would do it if it was that much cheaper and more effective to do it that way. Is it rooted in our Midwestern identity to just be the sort of forward-thinking people that do the work today instead of putting it off till tomorrow? Or, or why is it that Wisconsin is such a rarity in this? Well, I think the, the risk sharing is a huge contributor to the good governance that we observe in um, Wisconsin. Because of the risk sharing, interests are aligned between the active workers, the retirees, the taxpayers, the legislature, and the executive branch of government local governments, municipalities, counties. So this alignment of interest drives the governance to be very high quality because everybody is looking after their self-interest. In most other plans, the beneficiaries don't care because they believe they have a constitutionally protected property right. And if the agents who are either elected trustees or appointed trustees, in some cases a sole trustee. In other plans where there's no risk sharing, there are no short-term consequences to doing a bad job. Can I bring you back to the pandemic for a moment, David? Can you talk a little bit about how your staff was able to pivot to working remotely when the pandemic hit? Because more than half of the assets of SWIB are managed in-house. Yes, I think that the pandemic resulted in sending the staff home on March 11th. And uh, we had rehearsed this in our business continuity plan. And we had talked this through and we had done some tests, but they were stage tests and the number of participants was relatively small. It wasn't until we had 200 plus individuals logging on to remote access that we truly understood the challenge of working remotely. I was very, very proud of the team's ability to get things organized in terms of the technology, the data services, operations, the trade settlement process, and the uh, research process. And things have been working smoothly since then. From time to time, we'll have a little hiccup, but I think it's going very, very smoothly. The surprising thing is that I've noticed that people work strange hours. <laughs> people might be online from eight to five, and then you'll see that they're working. They're sending out work product at eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. So I feel pretty good about the productivity, the level of productivity. And I think if you talk to my wife, she'll tell you that I'm guilty of doing that same. In fact, I think that Chris has gotten more than a few emails from me at like nine or ten o'clock at night. But you're right, I, I certainly feel like since I've relocated to my home office that 
Uh, I've perhaps even been more productive than I was when I was working on site. Um, that much said, uh, what were some of the, the challenges of, of moving to that remote working environment for your team? Yeah, some of the challenges that we had when we went 100% remote related to the server capacity, the ability to handle all this traffic that went from our home technology to talk to our office computers, the office network data. Another issue had to do with market data services, where some of the analysts manipulate enormous blocks of data, and we had to figure out how to do that efficiently over the internet. I think there are multiple security protocols as different staff have adapted their home technology to be able to operate remote, that we found that there were multiple solutions and we had to harmonize the solutions so that we only had to maintain a few configurations as opposed to many configurations. Uh, that took a great toll on the, on the help desk and the infrastructure team. And even with the move to a remote environment, I think what's most impressive is that staff was able to continue to make decisions and make those investments that they needed to make. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of staff not missing a beat? Yeah, you might wonder how we could switch over from working in the office to working remotely so quickly. But I think if you take the typical personality of an investment professional into account, it's not such a surprise. At the risk of stereotyping and suggesting that all investment professionals are the same, you look for somebody who's very competitive, you look for somebody who's very disciplined, you look for somebody who's a bit single-minded and confident, not overconfident, but confident, for somebody who pays great attention to detail and likes digging and digging for the truth, enjoys the challenge of putting a mosaic together so they can see the picture with better insight than other people in the marketplace. And these individuals tend to spend a lot of time building models and research and doing quantitative analysis, talking to Wall Street strategists, analysts. And that can be done in an office with your door closed. So where that office is turns out to not be that important. Again, because we're in Madison, that's not a hotspot for corporate CEOs and CFOs and chief operating officers to come and spend the day to talk to us. We're already set up to have those corporate access meetings remotely. The other part of the investment process, which is extremely important and probably even more difficult than the actual quantitative research, is the Socratic process of debating investment ideas and research as a team, and I'm going to say helping somebody understand what they might have missed or not quite unraveled. So that process requires a great deal of respect and trust, a shared sense of safety to have that kind of intellectual debate over investment ideas. That's harder to do remotely, but again, it can be done remotely uh, I think good leadership helps to foment that kind of interaction. So everything I've heard, David, is that uh, is very reassuring, um, the way the trust funds are managed. But obviously, participants may still have some worries. What would you say to reassure the participants who are worried about their pensions? I would say 
Take a deep breath. Sit in a nice chair. Turn the lights out. Breathe deeply and wait for the worry to pass. It's really not necessary. Again, I come back to the risk sharing and the um, alignment of interest across all of the constituent groups. One of the things that Governor Walker did is he asked for a report to be written on the WRS. And the goal of the report was to see if there was a better way to manage the pension. And the report came back and said, you shouldn't touch the pension plan. It's a gem. It's a very special structure, which is economical, robust, and secure. Actually, is one of the reasons frequently mentioned for Wisconsin having a higher credit rating than other states. So it's a positive contribution to the state. The report was issued, and Governor Walker communicated to the SWIB board through the Secretary of the Department of Administration, that the WRS was not broken, so there was nothing to fix. And he was actually very supportive of our campaign to bring assets in-house. It would be such a big mistake to mess with something that is considered the envy of almost all other states. And this is a plan that was put in place more than 30 years ago, and it's one of the top-performing funds in the country. That had to be incredibly gratifying to you, David, that the State of Wisconsin Investment Board was examined and found to pass with flying colors. And so I I think it speaks to certainly your background as the executive director of SWIB, which is in and of itself a fascinating story. You play an important role in managing the retirement of WRS members. So how did you wind up at SWIB exactly in your current role? I, I, I've been working in the financial services industry for a long time, 41 years. And I was lucky to have an opportunity to work in London for four years. When I came back from London, I was working for the First National Bank of Chicago. I had to retool. And so I started studying for the CFA credential, a certified financial analyst. And that's a three-year curriculum with three years of tests. When I passed that, my wife said, David, that's your last degree or credential with your first wife. (laughs) I think my daughter was two and a half years old. So I went to Gary Brinson, who founded a firm called Brinson Partners, and Sam Anderson, his chief of administration. And I asked them how somebody like myself, who was 10 years out of business school and, um, more of an operations specialist and accountant than an investment professional, how I could transition into being an investor. And their firm had grown dramatically, I believe, from 90 billion to 400 billion. And so they made me a deal I couldn't refuse. They said, if you will come and help us sort out our back office, we will help you transition into being an investor. And so I joined in 1992. And in uh, 1994, I moved into the asset allocation team. And I've been on the investment side since 1994. The company was sold. And um, when it was sold, the buyout was accelerated. So as you can imagine, as the partners cashed out, 
many of them left. Some retired. Some changed careers. I left and went to be the chief investment officer at the State of Florida Investment Board, which is one of the largest funds in the country. I think at the time it was $150 billion. It's probably well over $200 billion now. I was attracted to come to Wisconsin by the um, executive director and the board at the time in, in, in 2006, primarily because the role was to reinvigorate the internal management and to create an asset management organization within the agency. And I thought that was the opportunity of a lifetime. And I actually saw that as the opportunity to recreate the spirit and the culture of Brinson Partners when Brinson Partners was a very young and rapidly growing company in 1992. The whole firm fit into a rather small conference room. That's turned out to be what this has been about. It's, it doesn't move as fast as we did in Chicago, but it moves fast enough that I think we've created a model of how internal management should be approached, how risk management should be approached, how leverage can be used to enhance returns. And I think we're very highly regarded in terms of our ability to attract and retain talent, which is really largely a reflection of the board and the governance than it is a reflection of the contribution of the executive director, CIO. I think, I think that's important, but having a governance system or a governance process and a vision of what success looks like at the board level, that allows the organization to be steadfast in the journey and to work through obstacles and difficulties, which might be changing out obsolete infrastructure to dealing with the great financial crisis or the current pandemic. But this ability to stay the course and not blink is really a reflection of the top-level governance that the board brings to bear. And I think I am really, really honored and proud to be working for the board. And, and the board has probably turned over two times in the last 14 years. So this is systematic as opposed to just a passing phenomenon. So this podcast is just one way that we're keeping people informed about how SWIB uh, works for the WRS and the WRS serves those participants what are some other resources for people who want to learn more about the world of finances? Well, that's a dangerous question because I am a frustrated teacher. <laughs> so here's my list of books everybody should read. I, I think part of what I would say is financial literacy is, is really important. So I would suggest a very small book. It's probably 99 pages it's written by um, Kenneth Galbraith. And I think it's called A Brief History of Financial Euphoria. And the reason I think that that's a, an important book is because it helps us understand that it's important to be humble when we try to go on to the global capital markets playing field and compete against a market that consists of hundreds of thousands of very smart, hardworking people to have the hubris that we're better than average and we can beat the market really takes a special personality. And it's important to be humble and to realize that your biggest ally is time, sticking to your strategy. There, there are other books that 
I would recommend. One is A Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Malkiel. Another book that makes us humble. I think a book by Schiller, professor at Yale, called um, Irrational Exuberance. But I would read his second edition. I would not read his first edition because his second edition predicts the great financial crisis in the last chapter of the book about real estate without fully understanding what subprime is and special purpose vehicles are. He nails it. And um, again, it's another lesson in being humble. I think many people saw it coming, but more people didn't see it coming than saw it coming. Not only was it that people didn't see it coming, is people didn't see how corrupt the financial services industry had become at that moment. Once you read these books and you start to look at the bibliography, then I would go into TED Talks or YouTubes and try to listen to podcasts from Schiller, Bert Malkiel, maybe David Swenson, and um, view those podcasts with this concept of humility in mind. You should learn about what it means to be diversified, what it means to be humble, what it means to not have all your eggs in one basket. Certainly a humbling note on which to end there. And all around, Chris, I'd say an excellent opportunity for members of the Wisconsin Retirement System to learn a little bit more about the people and practices behind how their pension fund is managed. This has been a tremendous discussion. Uh, David, you've provided a lot of insight into the investment management of the WRS. Uh, David Villa, the Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at SWIB, thank you so much for taking the time with us uh, today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to the SWIB podcast. We'll be bringing you updates on a monthly basis, so make sure to take a moment and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Also, remember to follow SWIB on LinkedIn or subscribe to our email newsletter for more information. The SWIB podcast is brought to you by the State of Wisconsin Investment Board and produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Preisler. And I'm Dusty Weiss.